This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper in Washington, D.C. Tonight, as Israel ramps up its bombardment of the terror group Hamas, innocent civilians are finally being allowed to leave war-ravaged Gaza. An Egyptian official tells CNN that 361 foreign nationals left Gaza and entered Egypt through the Rafah crossing today. The U.S. State Department confirms some of those were Americans. And sources say the group includes two American aid workers, Dr. Barbara Zinn, a pediatrician, and Ramona Okumura, a prosthetics expert, were volunteering in Gaza. One of Ramona's family members will join us live in just moments for now, so stick around for that. And the White House says it expects to get all Americans out of Gaza, a number believed to be around 400 within a few days. Dozens of severely injured Palestinians also were allowed to cross into Egypt today and were rushed to Egyptian hospitals for medical care that they haven't been able to get inside Gaza. Despite this small glimmer of hope in southern Gaza today, the situation in the north is getting even more grim. Israel confirms it is behind an airstrike at the largest refugee camp in Gaza for the second day in a row. The IDF says it was targeting a Hamas command center at the Jabalaya camp. Videos from the scene show a crater in the ground and people digging through the rubble for bodies. I also want to make sure you're aware that later this hour, we will air Jake Tapper's exclusive reporting on just how difficult it is to identify the bodies of those killed on October 7th. And we should warn you, this reporting includes very disturbing images. Let's start the CNN's with CNN's Amelia Sabell in Egypt. Melissa, what are you hearing from those finally able to leave Gaza? Well, tremendous relief, of course, for the families of those that we're talking about. And as you just mentioned, we've just had confirmation that some of them are American citizens. We understood earlier today from American officials that they believe that the 7,000 foreigner dual nationals currently believed to be inside Gaza will be allowed out as part of this comprehensive deal. For the first few to make it out today, tremendous relief. A tired smile and a wave from one of the lucky few, finally allowed to leave Gaza since the war began. These families, just some of the first foreign and dual nationals finally permitted through the Rafah crossing into Egypt on Wednesday, the result of a deal brokered by Qatar between Israel, Hamas, Egypt and the United States that will allow all foreign and dual nationals to leave the besieged enclave. Also allowed to leave under the deal, the first Palestinians, 81 of the most severely wounded, those desperate enough for urgent surgical intervention taken one by one in a convoy of ambulances to a field hospital set up a few miles away and to other hospitals in northern Egypt. Large crowds of foreign nationals had been massing at the border after hearing at the start of the conflict that they'd be allowed out. Families desperately checking to see if they were some of those lucky enough finally to get through. I'm an American living in Gaza. We heard that the crossing was open, but unfortunately we discovered that it was open for specific nationalities at the moment. And we had to turn back because the cellular network was down and we weren't aware that there was a list. We hope to see our names on the list tomorrow or the next day. As the only crossing from Gaza to anywhere other than Israel, all eyes had been on Rafah ever since the total siege of the Strip was announced by Israel. 
It is the only way in and out now, and what's gone in has been painfully little. A further 20 trucks arriving on Wednesday, a drop in the ocean, say aid organizations given the needs inside. For some here, it's been days or even weeks of waiting and praying. With ever-dwindling supplies and under the constant fear of Israeli strikes, even here in the south where civilians had been told by the IDF to evacuate, nowhere in Gaza is safe. So finally, for a small few, a chance to leave and live again. Still, Pamela, for those still inside, even those who are uh, foreign nationality and therefore should be able to leave, difficult days ahead. There is the communications issue. Uh, how many of them are aware of the fact that they're able to leave and how orderly is their exit going to be? These questions have yet to be answered. But I think what's important here today is that we've established that those talks that are going on between parties, some of whom are not speaking to each other, and I'm speaking up here about Hamas, Israel, Egypt, with the mediation of Qatar and the United States, those talks are happening and they are working. And that is, of course, good news uh, for the families of the hostages being held inside Gaza as well. All right, thank you so much, Melissa Bell. I want to bring in my colleague Wolf Blitzer now live in Tel Aviv. Wolf? All right, Pamela, thank you. I want to go to CNN's MJ Lee. She's over at the White House following all these dramatic developments that are unfolding right now. MJ, the State Department, as you know, has confirmed the first group of Americans finally made it out of Gaza earlier today. What is President Biden hearing about when more Americans will be able to evacuate? That's right, Wolf. This is the first confirmation of American citizens leaving Gaza and are now in Egypt. We are uh, understanding that it is going to be a small group of Americans that will be processed today, and then there will be more to come uh, in the coming days. The State Department, of course, has said previously that there are some 400 American citizens in Gaza that are trying to leave. That is in addition to the other uh, 5,000 or so foreign nationals that are also in the same position. Uh, this, of course, is an arrangement that was reached uh, after weeks, uh, days of intensive talks between many parties, including uh, U.S., Israel, Qatar, Egypt, and Hamas. Uh, and we know now that Hamas had pushed for uh, Palestinians that were wounded in Gaza to be released, but that notably what they wanted was for some of their own fighters to be among the mix. That is a demand that we are told was rejected. And then on the Egyptian side, we know that there were some serious concerns concerns about the possibility of Palestinians that leave Gaza, enter Egypt, uh, potentially permanently staying in Egypt, and that that was a concern that U.S. officials have been speaking to their uh, counterparts in Egypt about. Uh, we know that these were all sort of details that President Biden himself directly discussed in phone calls that he had with his own counterparts in Egypt uh, and in Israel over the weekend. Uh, obviously, this is a huge moment of release, relief for U.S. officials, but one thing that this is not is a release of hostages. We know that there are believed to be American hostages in Gaza as well, uh, but that is a separate negotiation and no breakthrough on that front yet. Wolf. All right, MJ, stand by. I know this is all coming as some of Israel's strikes on Gaza are resulting in hundreds of innocent civilian deaths. What kind of pressure is President Biden feeling about, uh, about the support that the United States is offering Israel? It's been very dramatic, that U.S. support. 
Yeah, the Biden White House really is confronting uh, many tough questions about the mounting civilian death toll, and particularly after these airstrikes that uh, hit the refugee camp in northern Gaza. But notably, Wolf, we did hear from the White House. White House spokesperson John Kirby just told reporters uh, on Air Force One as the president was uh, traveling domestically, uh, he basically declined to specifically criticize any military actions that Israel has taken so far, including as they relate to these airstrikes that targeted this refugee camp. Uh, but this is a very significant concern uh, inside the Biden White House right now. Uh, the rising death toll that we have been seeing among civilians in Gaza. You know, we have heard U.S. officials saying from the very beginning that it is very important that Israel tried to minimize civilian casualties. And a lot of critics, of course, are starting to say that they are plainly not seeing that happen on the ground. MJ Lee at the White House for us. Thank you, MJ. Uh, we've been following the story of one American stuck in Gaza, following it very closely. That one, one American that we've been following, Ramona Akumora. She's a 71-year-old retired pediatric orthopedic specialist from Seattle. And she made prosthetics for children in Gaza for the past seven years, a volunteer. Akumura was there on October 7th. Since then, she's been staying at a United Nations compound and has tried repeatedly to get out of Gaza today. Good news. She finally did. Let's bring in Ramona Akumura's niece, Akemi Hyatt. Akemi, thank you so much for joining us. You and your family members were on a text chain when you finally found out your aunt was finally able to get out, to get out of Gaza. What was it like hearing she was able to cross that Rafa border crossing into Egypt? Thank you, yes. We were on uh, pins and needles. We had heard from the State Department only at 6 p.m. Hawaii time um, last night, and she crossed this morning around 5, 5 a.m. my time. So the entire night was definitely... Um, a, a, a rotating cast of family members keeping in touch. We saw that she, we visibly saw her cross through the gates and then she was held in the processing area for, for most of the rest of the time. But we are so incredibly relieved that she will be safe. And you that know, I just want to interrupt for a moment. I just want to interrupt for a moment. We're going to get back to you. We're going to get back to you. Uh, but the President Biden has just taken the stage and we're told he's about to make a statement on Rafa and what's going on in Gaza. Let's listen. As part of the first group of probably over a thousand, we'll see more of this process going on in the coming days. Working nonstop to get Americans out of Gaza as soon and as safely as possible. This is the result of intense and urgent American diplomacy with our partners in the region. I personally spent a lot of time speaking with the Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel and the President Sisi of Egypt and others to make sure that we could open this access for people to get out. I want to thank our partners in the region, and particularly Qatar, who've worked so closely with us to support negotiations to, to facilitate the departure of these citizens. At the same time, we're continuing working to significantly step up the flow of critical humanitarian assistance into Gaza. The number of trucks entering Gaza continues to increase significantly, but we still have a long way to go. The United States is going to continue to drive humanitarian support for innocent people in Gaza who need help, and they do need help. We're going to continue to affirm 
that Israel has the right to respond responsibility to defend its citizens from terror, and it needs to do so in a manner that is consistent with international and humanitarian law that prioritizes the protection of citizens. We've all seen the devastating images from Gaza. Palestinian children crying out for lost parents, parents reasoning and writing their children's names on their hands and legs to be identified if the worst happens. It's okay. Kids are allowed to do that with me. Okay? Don't worry about it, all right? I don't blame her. Is it him or her? I don't blame her. Look, the loss of every, every innocent life is a tragedy. We grieve for those deaths and continue to grieve for the Israeli children and mothers who are brutally slaughtered by Hamas terrorists and also continue to hold in our hearts the, the hundreds of families and loved ones, including small children and elderly grandparents, including American citizens being held hostage. My administration continues to work around the clock to reunite those families. We're not going to give up, period. We're not going to give up. And uh, I am optimistic, but then I am an optimist. Folks, uh, now I want to thank Brad for that introduction. Brad said he wasn't sure what a good speaker was. He can speak a hell of a lot better than I can farm. All right, uh, we hear, hear, heard, just heard from the President of the United States making an important statement on what's going on in Gaza right now, recommending that Israel be very, very cautious and careful in its bombing campaign against Hamas terrorists in Gaza to try to avoid civilian casualties. He also promised that the United States is working around the clock to get U.S. citizens out of Gaza and to make sure that the hostages who are being held by Hamas in Gaza, more than 200, including many Americans, eventually get out as well. And he says they're not going to stop and, and they're not going to give up in that effort. We had interrupted uh, uh, Ukemi, uh, who's with us, her aunt or Ramona, uh, is one of those Americans who finally got out of Gaza earlier today. And Ukemi, I wonder if you want to give us some reaction to what you just heard from President Biden. Oh, okay, sure. Yes, I think that while we're very, very grateful that our aunt is safe, we know that her story is, is just one and much part of a much larger story of suffering from, from all sides. So, um, you know, she works with children and, and child amputees in Gaza, and she's done that for seven years. She feels very strongly about the humanitarian need there. And I think that uh, we are so happy again that she was one of the five that could leave, but we also hold in our in our hearts a sorrow of the, the rest of the people that are, remain stranded and hope they can be evacuated safely. Ukemi, have you or any other members of your family actually spoken to your aunt uh, since she got out of Egypt earlier today? We have been in a family chat and we have heard from her directly uh, all throughout the night and while she was crossing the border and now have gotten text confirmation that from her that she is on her way to a hotel in Cairo. Yes, that's such good news and we're so happy for you and your family. Your cousin Nick, by the way, joined the show uh, on Monday and expressed his frustration with the State Department over how long it took to try to get your aunt out of uh, Gaza right now. Has that frustration now faded, or do you still feel the U.S. government could have done more to get her out more quickly? 
I think there is still frustration from many who are still there. I don't know, you know, we we understand the the complexity of the negotiation and we were not we were not privy to the nuances of that. And so um, we just remain incredibly grateful, but we also uh, do call upon uh, our government to continue evacuating other dual citizens, other Americans to also hopefully call for a ceasefire because um, this is, you know, from the last couple of days, we were very growing very desperate. We were hearing from her that um, there were really limited food. They were starting to ration. People had illnesses and she was relatively protected given her status as an aid worker. But we know that 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 is not the situation everyone else is in. Um, so, again, incredibly grateful. But we we advocate and are continuing to assist and share resources with other family members still trapped. Yeah. Clearly, there's a lot more work that needs to be done, urgent work to get the other Americans out and to get all the others, people who desperately need medical care out of Gaza right now. Uh, Ukemi Hyatt, thank you so much for joining us. And we're very happy for you and your family that your aunt has finally gotten out of Gaza. Up next, that second strike on Gaza's largest refugee camp. What Israel is now saying about its target and the chances of Palestinian civilians killed in the process. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're looking at new video from northern Gaza today, uh, where a second massive airstrike uh, hit the Jabalia refugee camp. This afternoon, Israel took responsibility. A day after it hit the same location, both strikes, uh, according to the IDF, took out Hamas terrorists. CNN's Nada Bashir is following all these dramatic developments for us. She's got the latest. Uh, she's joining us from Jerusalem. Nada, first of all, what do we know about today's airstrike? Well, look, this is the second Israeli airstrike that has been carried out on the Jabalia refugee camp in less than 24 hours. And we have seen those scenes of devastation and destruction across the camp. Today's airstrike focused on the Fallujah neighborhood of the Jabalia refugee camp, which, as we know, according to the UN, is home to more than 100,000 people. And many of these residential buildings have been completely flattened as a result of those airstrikes. We've seen those dramatic videos of people, residents, digging 
digging through the rubble, hoping to find survivors. But as we have seen yesterday and as we've seen uh, today, once again, many people are believed to have been killed. Many have been wounded in this airstrike. Now, as you mentioned there, uh, the IDF has confirmed that it carried out that airstrike today. They say that this airstrike was focused on targeting a Hamas command and control center in the Jabalia uh, neighborhood. They say that several Hamas fighters were killed in this latest airstrike. This follows Tuesday's airstrike where a senior Hamas commander, according to the IDF, is said to have been targeted there. But as we know, this is a densely populated civilian area and there has been widespread condemnation of these airstrikes that are taking place in northern Gaza, where, as we know, the IDF has warned people to evacuate. But there are many who simply cannot leave. And this is one of those areas that has been continues to be uh, densely populated. We've seen nearby hospitals completely overwhelmed. And we have had repeated warnings from medics on the ground. One doctor telling us yesterday that bodies were arriving at the hospital charred and dismembered, that there were bodies, corpses shrouded, lining the streets outside of the hospital because their morgues are simply at capacity already. And we have now had uh, a pretty stark and clear warning from the UN Human Rights Office. Let me just read you their tweet, which they issued a little while ago, saying, given the high number of civilian casualties and the scale of the destruction following Israeli airstrikes on the Jabalia refugee camp, we have serious concerns that these are disproportionate attacks that could amount to war crimes. Wolf. Donald Bashir reporting from Jerusalem. Thank you very much. Pamela, back to you in Washington. All right, thanks, Wolf. In the New York courtroom today, Donald Trump Jr. on the witness stand. His testimony this afternoon in the civil fraud trial involving his family and the family business. Just moments ago, Donald Trump Jr., the former president's oldest son, began testifying in the fraud trial involving the Trump family and their company. Trump Jr. and his brother Eric Trump are named as defendants in the $250 million lawsuit accused of knowingly participating in a scheme to boost the former president's net worth for financial benefit. Despite his senior role in the company, Donald Trump Jr. has tried to distance himself from the organization's financial statements, telling investigators in a deposition last year, I had no real involvement in the preparation of the statement of financial condition and don't really remember ever working on it with anyone. In a lengthy post on Truth Social early this morning, the former president warned the judge overseeing the case to leave my children alone, also calling the judge, quote, a disgrace to the legal profession. CNN's Paula Reed joins us now. So this is all going right now. What has Trump Jr. testified to in court so far and what is his role in the case exactly? So he is accused of participating with his father and his brother, Eric, in this alleged scheme to inflate the value of assets for their family's company. Now remember, the judge has already found them liable for fraud, and this trial is really about trying to stave off some pretty significant penalties. Now he's called here as a witness for the prosecution. He's been on the stand for a little over an hour, and so far, the key thing that he has said is that he wasn't intimately involved uh, in these assessments, that he relied on experts. Because for several years, while his father was in the White House, he was the one signing these financial statements, but he said he was relying on the experts uh, that they had hired in terms of doing these valuations. Now, I want to emphasize, you know, this, this trial, it's not just about money. Unlike the criminal cases that the former president is facing, this is a case that could have immediate ramifications for his family. So we're not just watching what Donald Trump Jr. says, 
We're also watching for how his father reacts. Yeah, that is key. And, you know, you mentioned there were other cases. Donald Trump's attorneys were in court in Florida in the, doc the classified documents case because they're trying to push back the start of that trial. What happened? So in this case, this is the Florida classified documents case. It is scheduled to go to trial in May 2024. The number one goal for the Trump team right now is to try to get this case delayed until after the 2024 election. There is, of course, a political reason for that. They don't want their client to go through two, possibly three criminal trials uh, before the election. But legally, their argument is that this is a heavy lift for them. They're working on the civil case in New York. They have the other criminal case, the January 6th case that's scheduled to go earlier in the year. You can see that calendar right there. That's a crowded calendar. And they're arguing this, this is too much, too fast. Now, prosecutors argue that maybe the former president should hire more lawyers and not use the same people for all of these cases. But what's so significant is that the judge today, Eileen Cannon, the Trump appointee, she appeared skeptical that they really could do these criminal trials back to back uh, next spring. And this is a big test for her. So it'll be interesting to see her final opinion. Most of the sources I speak with, though, uh, anywhere near this case, legal experts, they all agree, Pam. It's, it's unlikely that these cases will both go back to back next year. But let's see what Judge Cannon says. Let's see, Paula Reed. Thank you so much. Well, there's Trump's legal world, and it's spilling into his 2024 campaign. He has been attacking anyone in position as to threaten his name. A taste of what Trump has been telling his supporters up next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Former President Donald Trump faces a total of 91 charges across four criminal cases playing out in courtrooms in New York, Florida and Georgia. And cases that range from election subversion to hush money to allegedly mishandling classified documents. CNN's Jeff Zeleny looks at how the former president is using his 2024 presidential campaign to lash out at his mounting legal problems. The inflammatory rhetoric that's gotten Donald Trump into hot water in the courtroom. This judge is a very partisan judge. Is the fuel of his political campaign. You have to get out and you have to fight like hell because these are dirty players. More than ever before, the former president is waging a campaign of vengeance, attacking judges, going after prosecutors, and raising the specter of violence. We will immediately stop all of the pillaging and theft. Very simply, if you rob a store, you can fully expect to be shot as you are leaving that store. Shot. In his third presidential bid, retribution has become a far louder rallying cry. He suggested Mark Milley, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, should be executed for treason. He's joked about the brutal attack on former Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband. He's implored supporters to drive away his enemies. 2024 is our final battle. With you at my side, we will demolish the deep state. We will expel the warmongers. Get them all out of our government. While Trump's legal challenges are inexplicably linked with his presidential campaign, the disconnect is jarring. Even major court developments, like a tearful guilty plea from his former lawyer. If I knew then what I know now, 
I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. I look back on this whole experience with deep remorse. Haven't changed the view of many loyal Trump supporters. There's a lot more than you think that um, are in favor of Trump and felt that the last election was stolen and um, we just want, you know, we just want what's ours. Lori Scroggins saw the former president this week in Iowa. She's unbothered by criticism and dismissive of his Republican rivals, whom she believes should step aside. They're just nothing but a distraction and an annoyance, like a mosquito or a fly. You just want to, yeah, poof them away and let's get down to the meat, the real politics. Let's get down to what Trump has to say. And Trump has a lot to say, stoking anger and rallying supporters to his defense. I promise you this, if you put me back in the White House, their reign will be over and America will be a free nation once again. Now, this campaign of vengeance, of course, is coming against the backdrop of what we saw on January 6th, where many Trump supporters said they were indeed following his orders for violence. So, Pamela, that's why all of this matters. When you talk to Trump voters, of course, most of them are not violent. Most of them would not follow that, but perhaps some would. But this is so interesting how it is just hanging out there. We're seeing developments in the the courtrooms where his lawyers are pleading guilty to things. But his supporters are not really following those developments at all. They are simply unmoved by this. Yeah. So like overall, how has it impacted Donald Trump on the campaign trail? Well, look, he's in command of this race, more so than he was at the beginning of this year when the charges first started. That's why this is really so extraordinary. So, yes, his campaign and his legal cases are linked, but the rhetoric is increasingly more violent, much more so than it was eight years ago, even four years ago. That's why there is some concern about this. Of course, the gag orders are in effect. He's rejected some of those. We'll see how all of this plays out. Very much an open question. All right, Jeff Zeleny, thank you so much. Up next from Tel Aviv, a disturbing report that needs a warning. It has numerous graphic images and it will be difficult to watch, but it is important for the world to see. Well, the manner in which many victims of the October 7th Hamas attacks were killed has made identifying some of the remains nearly impossible. CNN's Jake Tapper obtained forensic images and spoke with the doctor leading some of that heart-wrenching work. The images are incredibly graphic and disturbing, but they do add to the greater understanding of just what took place on October 7th. Jake filed this report from Tel Aviv, and again, we warn you, This report includes some very disturbing images. We are approaching four weeks since Hamas's deadly October 7th terrorist attack on Israel when more than 1,400 mostly Israeli individuals were killed, most of them civilians, but hundreds, hundreds of bodies remain unidentified. I recently spoke with Dr. Chen Kugel, who is the director of Israel's National Institute of Forensic Medicine, who explained why it's been so difficult to identify these remaining bodies. A a warning now, I'm gonna show you some images that are graphic and disturbing. We're showing them to you because they explain something about the abject cruelty of what Hamas terrorists did to civilians on October 7th. And also because it shows how difficult this process has been for families who want answers about what happened to their lost loved ones. Again, a warning of what I'm about to show you. So Dr. Kugel says, what looks to be a piece of burnt wood or or coal here 
is actually flesh. And upon further examination with imaging, it reveals two sets of rib cages. Uh, one of them is smaller, uh, with a wire tying them together. And the conclusion of Dr. Kugel and his team, these are the burned bodies of an adult and a child tied together, maybe embracing. Opening a body bag, Dr. Kugel and his team found these charred remains. You'll, you'll notice that these remains are white. Kugel told me that that means the temperature was above 700 degrees centigrade, which Dr. Kugel says likely means the terrorists used some sort of chemical accelerant uh, to get that high a temperature. Ultimately, his team concluded these were actually the remains of two different people, though there was no DNA to trace. No DNA was left because of the high temperatures, so their identities will never be known. From a different body bag, a CAT scan revealed that there were bones in here, three left legs and two right legs in the bag. So that meant, Dr. Kugel and his team concluded, three different people in this same body bag. And these five bones were the only traces left of these three people. Maybe in other bags there were other pieces of these people, Dr. Kugel told me. These are very difficult cases to deal with, and I'm about to show you an even more upsetting example. This is a blurred picture from the National Center of Forensic Medicine, and even blurred, it's disturbing. This is the burned body of an adolescent girl, and her head has been mostly separated from her body. Now, the forensic experts say they don't know if the separation happened before or after the girl was killed. Still, this happened. And this is the level of cruelty that we are talking about here. Jake Tapper, CNN, Tel Aviv. Oh, I want to bring in Stefan Schmidt, a forensics expert at Florida International University, and Beth Sanner, former deputy director of national intelligence, to discuss this. And note to our viewers, we are not going to show those images again. Um, Stefan, as you see these images, given your experience, what is your reaction? Well, I think that my reaction is that the situation is much more complicated than even this brief report uh, describes, just simply because in a mass, mass casualty event like this, any forensic institution is going to be overwhelmed. And, you know, authorities, be it law enforcement or first responders, when they respond, are going to retrieve whatever remains they can. Of course, they're going to focus on the survivors first. Um, and it's not going to be even known how many victims you actually have. It's not like, you know, you can put together a list of victims. And I think a good example of that is the case where, you know, you have these charred remains and Dr. Kugel had determined that there were two, uh, three uh, left legs and two right legs. And that doesn't mean that you have three individuals there. What it means is that you have a minimum of three individuals there. All you know is that you have three separate left legs because nobody that has two left legs and two right legs. And those two right legs could belong to other individuals as well. And that goes for every bag where you have disassociated remains like that. So you're talking about a minimum number of individuals, but there could be more. 
there could be, you know, two right bone, right arm bones in there as well, and you don't know whether they belong to these particular remains. What that highlights is that when you do the retrieval of these kind of remains, that it's also very important that you uh, document how they were found at a particular site, because oftentimes that will give you some sort of lead on uh, how the remains were originally associated with what body they were associated, for instance. Is this the type of evidence, Stefan, that could be used to prove potential war crimes? Uh, yes, of course. I mean, when you're talking about war crimes, you're talking about being able to provide evidence of grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions uh, in the sense that um, you're looking at a crime that was committed by uh, a soldier or in this case terrorists and you're going to have to follow the same kind of uh, evidence procedures that you would for a court of law so chain of custody one would expect that the crime scenes are documented uh, in a way that is consistent with the procedures for crime scenes. And like I noted, you know, in a case like this where you have a mass casualty event in war like this, this is going to be extremely difficult. I'm pretty sure there is no country in the world that has enough crime scene investigators uh, to respond to a scene like this and secure a scene for that long as well, because there's more evidence. You know, you're looking at things like cartridge casings and, you know, blood spatter, uh, and you're going to eventually have to, you know, provide evidence that these individuals were at the scene, they committed the crimes. And not only that, in case of war crimes, you're also looking at chain of command. You know, how far the up the chain of command does this go? Because eventually you would want to prosecute those individuals who gave the orders to have that, you know, to have these crimes perpetrated. So it's a very complicated situation and very challenging. Beth, I want to bring you in for your perspective. Is what we saw here as a result of October 7th a shift in Hamas's tactics, just given, as Jake said, just the sheer brutality? Yeah. Let me just add one point to what Stefan made, and that is combined with the body cam video of the Hamas fighters, which Hamas live streamed. So, you know, it was premeditated that they had the footage and that they live streamed the brutality of these killings. Um, and so you, you have quite a bit of evidence here that can be combined for those kind of war crime trials or prosecutions in some way. Um, on the issue of the, of the strategy, uh, you know, Hamas has, has had the strategy of trying to annihilate Israel since its founding. Now, for the first time, we're seeing a shift in tactics, killing babies, um, decapitating teenagers, elderly people, desecrations, um, that and the social media aspect of putting that out, that is a very big shift. And I think it, it really marries up for the first time Hamas's strategic goal with their tactics. You know, Beth, what are we to make of this moment as we take a step back and absorb this when we see these kinds of images and we see sheer devastation in parts of Gaza as well? Yes. You know, I think that this is where, you know, all of us in our humanity, we, we really need to understand, <laughs> seek to understand the trauma, the real trauma 
that is being experienced by Israelis, by Jews around the world, and by Palestinian civilians and Arabs. Um, this brings great historical trauma and emotional trauma out. And I think that, um, as I've said before on different shows, we have to be able to talk about both of these things and, mm -hmm. and see them as different, but real. Yeah, that's a very important point. Uh, thank you both so much, Stefan and Beth. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Lead. Earlier today, the Cornell University student accused of making anti-Semitic threats against the school's Jewish community appeared in court. 21-year-old Patrick Dye did not enter a plea in the case. Prosecutors say Dye wrote multiple social media posts threatening to kill Jewish students, including threats to shoot up a kosher dining hall. According to the complaint, he made the threats under the username Hamas Soldier. Well, if you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage picks up now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room, live from Tel Aviv. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.